Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. This podcast is for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and data science leaders to learn the skills required to take your career to the next level. We do this by hearing the learnings, the challenges, and the struggles of current top data science leaders out there in the industry. My name is Felipe Flores, and I am your host. In this episode, we'll speak to Thurston Moody, who is the Vice President and Chief Data and Analytics Officer at State Farm. Thurston's had an amazing career, and she tells us about how she got to where she is today, and also about her love for data and how it complements her understanding of human behavior. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please let me know what you think. Hi, this is Felipe Flores, and today I'm speaking with Thurston Moody. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you. How are you? Very good. Very excited to be speaking with you. Thanks so much for making the time. My pleasure. So first up, I would like to ask if you can give us an overview of your professional background to date and how did you get to where you are? Absolutely. So my name is Sherston Moody and my current role is the first ever chief data and analytics officer for State Farm. We are insurance company based and with operations exclusively in the United States. And in the U.S., we are the largest automobile insurance carrier in the U.S. So I studied economics at the University of Chicago and uh, somewhat by accident ended up out of school in consulting where I joined a technology consulting firm which was in sort of specialized in building custom software solutions for businesses that were at the early part of digitizing processes. So this is going back into the 90s when the build versus buy decisions that companies were making tended to shift more towards the build versus the buy, given that many of the productivity software suites that we rely on today were either non-existent or fairly immature. So it was almost by accident that I ended up in technology coming out of university with a degree in economics. So I spent about 10 years in consulting, working in progressively senior roles in a number of different companies in the United States, consulting for a number of different companies in the United States, thinking about this intersection of people and technology and how to reestablish that balance really for some type of business result, usually in a process type of efficiency or productivity efficiency. So had some very interesting work in companies as what was then Motorola, Pfizer, what was then Sharon Plow, Harley Davidson. So a number of iconic brands in the United States spent some significant consulting time there working on those kinds of problems. I got married. That's actually why I left consulting. The travel load was becoming a bit much for me at that particular point in my life and joined a healthcare data and analytics company based in Chicago. So this company took in large amounts of data from healthcare providers, did something to it. Today, we would call that processing, normalizing, analytics, data science, and then sold those insights back to the industry. So again, a number of progressively senior roles at that company. It was a company called Solutions, which was purchased by Thomson, which then became Thomson Reuters. So my last role in the healthcare division of Thomson Reuters was as the VP of IT, looking after the infrastructure component for this kind of data analytics software as a service business. From there, I went to a consumer products uh, data analytics company, also headquartered in Chicago, Information Resources, or IRI. And I was their senior vice president for global IT for just under three years, at which point I was headhunted into Unilever. So my family and I moved to London in the UK. And we spent three years there, three marvelous years, where I led Unilever's global information and analytics department for all of Unilever's global functions, markets, and categories. So it was an amazing three years, both professionally and personally. We made the decision as a family to return to the United States just over a year ago. And as part of that process of coming back home, 
really. The State Farm Opportunity and I, we found each other. And I have been with the company for just over a year. Again, based in the Midwest in the U.S., just about 100 or so miles south of Chicago. So data, technology, process, people, change uh, have been a common denominator across a number of different industries and ways of engagement throughout my career. And it has ultimately led me here to State Farm, which is sort of an amazing experience that's really bringing all the bits and pieces from the opportunities that I've had professionally over the last 20 plus years to bear in terms of the agenda that we're defining and driving here. That's incredible. I have so many questions for you to get more about the information and what you learn in each stage. But before before we jump into that, I wanted to ask you, when did you develop a love of data? When was it that data really pulled you in? So it was actually in the economics degree. So economics at the University of Chicago is very much the traditional social science study of economics with a fairly rigorous mathematical complement to it. So it wasn't incompatible to go from that course of study into a more technical type of field the way that I did. But using data and thinking about what data reveals about the topic or the object that it is intended to describe has always been very, very interesting to me. And certainly in the study of economics, you're really using data to have some type of understanding or complement some type of understanding of human behavior. So I think from a philosophical perspective, the hook into data actually began in my undergraduate training. It's really continued. And I think as the data science space in the advanced analytics space has matured in industry, I find myself to be increasingly fascinated and almost going back really to some of the early training that I had just as the space itself becomes more mature in industry. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking, that your Bachelor in Economics prepared you so well for this combination (laughs) that we have today, really studying people through data and the fact that it is partly technology, partly social science, and having that blend. Yes, that is. Absolutely. I graduated in the 90s, so there was a few-year hiatus where I think the technology at the scale of business wasn't quite mature enough yet. So it was more hypothetical thinking and wondering and curious about this or that. But certainly, I think the capabilities have caught up to the intellectual interest, so you can actually start to fulfill the interest now in a very real way in business, which is what makes it so fascinating. And how was it for you going into technology consulting? How was that transition for you? It was exceedingly difficult in the sense that I was not a trained programmer. So the other college hires were typically coming from computer science departments or engineering degrees where they had an expectation of learning how to program, how to think and manipulate technology. So I, in the first two years, was playing a game of catch up, quite honestly. And they were very long days at work. Tasks would take me longer. So I still needed to finish at the same time as everybody else. So that meant that my days were longer as I was catching up to that knowledge. And evenings were filled with study, going, learning the essentials of Java programming, learning the essentials and um, some of the more intermediate and advanced skills with relational databases, understanding just the basics really of computing and storage and networking and how all of that architecturally needs to come together to build a successful application. So I was very much a blank slate on those particular topics coming out of an economic degree going into a more technical field in consulting. And it was a very, very intense sort of first two years to catch up and establish myself as somebody who could actually succeed. I'm incredibly grateful to the early mentors and managers that I had at that time who saw the potential and over what is a fairly extended period, nurtured that potential. They didn't necessarily have to, but for some combinations of reasons, uh, it did happen to me. I certainly am the beneficiary of having very strong 
very compassionate, very demanding leadership in my first role who was highly engaged with my development. Certainly as a leader uh, and in the position that I am in today, I do often reflect back on my experiences in the early days and think about sort of what my obligation is now to work with people who may be in similar situations and what does that mean. So like I said, it really wasn't easy. I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity that I was given, the chances that I was given, the risks that my employer took in taking on somebody with a slightly different background and helping me as an individual learn how to be successful in what was at the time a brand new area. Some of it, I have to admit, was just pure ignorance going into it. (laughs) When you're 21, you really, at least I didn't know very much at that point. And then the stubbornness kicked in of, well, I am going to learn this. And I was incredibly fortunate to be in an environment surrounded by people who were helpful to me in that learning journey. So if it hadn't been for the leadership that I had in those early years, I most certainly would be doing something very different today. That actually leads me on to my next question, which is how did those early years shape what you do today? And Mm -hmm. what were the learnings that you got from that time? And what do you reflect on now, as you were saying? Each phase of my career has contributed something significant to subsequent phases. So nothing is necessarily independently of any happens independently of anything else. So in the very early years, it is the value of hard work. It's the value of honesty when you have a question. It's the value of empathy. And it's the courage to learn something very, very hard. And recognizing that at the first and at the middle stages of that learning journey, you won't necessarily be as polished as you want to be. That's very important, I think, as early lessons for somebody to learn in their career because challenges, very hard challenges are a constant really in a domain such as data and data science and even technology as a whole, which is really driving transformation across business and across society. So the topics aren't easy and the work is not easy and the results are oftentimes take a lot of intense effort in teamwork to achieve. So understanding how to thrive in a very difficult situation, I think is in the big picture, the most important lesson from those early days. It's also the importance of leadership. So I think very carefully for myself about the leadership structures that I am within. So who I report to is something that's very important to me. I don't take that for granted. Even though today I'm in a very senior role, I still think critically about the individuals who I report to and what that relationship looks like between me and the people I report to. And then certainly I've been the beneficiary of great leaders. So I think a lot about what that means for me now that I am in a position of leadership and how can I help to and create the similar kind of environment that I benefited from in the early days. And then even sort of the type of work that we were doing in those early days in consulting was transformation. And really at a very early stage, thinking critically about that intersection between people and technology and coming from a more social science background from an educational perspective, I think has allowed me to exist successfully in both worlds inside of a business. So the technical world, as well as more of a a business focused world. So I've always been able to, and with increasing proficiency, straddle that divide. And I think that has been an important differentiator in my career coming up to the technology side of having this ability to relate to, to understand, to frame the work in ways that are trusted and consumable by a business partner. So true. And a trusted and consumable by a business partner, both, I guess, on the human side, from you mentioning and, and focusing on the empathy side, also on the business side, obviously from that economics background, being able to provide the context in both of those dimensions. That's mm-hmm. fantastic. What were some of the attributes of that great leadership that you had throughout your career? What are some of the attributes that you try to implement in your career or in your work as a leader now? The leadership took the time. 
manager, senior manager, director, even vice president level at this company took the time to know me, to understand where I thought I needed development, as well as to share with me where they thought I needed development, to provide the opportunities to have that development. It's not just sharing what is needed, but also then to help provide it and to share their expertise in an incredibly generous way. I remember it very clearly. I was two weeks on the job and it was a senior director in the company came. I was trying to figure something out. He sat next to my desk. I was in a chair he was sort of kneeling on the floor so he his hands could type easily at my keyboard. And he said, hang on a second, just give me the keyboard for a minute. Let me just show you and then we'll talk it through. And I can remember line by line what he was showing me in a Java program. <laughs> And I've just, I've literally, I've never forgotten it, uh, you know, all of these decades later. So it was the time component, which was a very active engagement in helping me to develop into the type of colleague that was needed for that company. So it was incredibly generous. And is that something that you try to incorporate in your leadership style today? And what does your leadership style look like these days? I think I will answer that question. It would be interesting to see how other people answer that question as well. I have always been given the compliment of you spend a lot of time and we can tell that you care. And I hear that from my team, direct reports, as well as people who are a few degrees removed, so indirect reports to a certain degree. And I also hear that feedback from people who are observing the teams or departments that I'm leading. So the leadership style. I hope that it is open, that it's honest, it's collaborative, and we are taking the time to really think about how the individual contributors of the team can reach their best of their ability and how that comes together to elevate the results of the team. And tell me, how was the transition for you, I guess, from technology consulting and doing transformations way ahead of the times, but then transitioning into healthcare? How did you find that? So I came in to this healthcare analytics company, again, through the technology track. So had a few different roles around what was at the time a data warehouse and including project management. So I spent about two plus years in incredibly strategic and well-run project management organization as a project manager. And I think that actually has been just an enormously beneficial experience that I've had. So it wasn't terribly difficult in the sense that the technology capabilities were similar or an evolution of what was being deployed through the lens of consulting. And in consulting, you're really bought in as an expert in a skill or a domain. So the industry knowledge was acquired through the project work that we were hired to do. So we weren't industry vertical experts, really. We were more horizontal skill experts that could be applied to any number of different industries. So it was just a new challenge going into the healthcare industry and in learning about healthcare, applying skills that were equivalent to or evolved from those kinds of skills and capabilities from the consulting world. What I really liked actually about being in industry is you got to see it through. In the consulting world, at least in my experience, we were brought in to do a piece of work and then would leave. Switching into industry, you owned it. If you built it, you owned it. So there was an operational component to the job as being an employee of a company versus the consultant who was brought in for a particular project that I really enjoyed. And the process and the thinking and the evolution of continuous improvement was very enjoyable for me as an ex-consultant having kind of a first experience inside of industry. It wasn't overly difficult, but there were certainly dimensions to the job outside of consulting that I appreciated and continue to appreciate today. And what did that time teach you in terms of the challenges and what did it give you for the rest of your career? So that first job after consulting was when I had 
explicit insight into how a business case is created and linking work into the financial structure of a business. Given the type of work that I was doing as a consultant, typically that was done by the client side and it was finished and approved by the time we started. So that first experience working for a business brought in that dimension of change, let's say, where you have to express the work, not just in terms of the scope of work, but understand how to express the work in terms of its impact in various parts of the organization and socialize and receive acceptance in those parts of the organization for the work before it's allowed to begin. So I worked with my first CFO and learned uh, some of the ins and outs of accounting. I mean, this is going back many, many years ago now, and really started to develop an appreciation for not just how to build and insert technology into an organization, but really the fabric of an organization that surrounds project work and change work. That is such an interesting transition of going from delivering transformational, high-quality work as a consultant, then moving into healthcare as an extension of that, but seeing a lot of great project management at that stage, to then going into, I guess, the next level of understanding how a business is connected Mm -hmm. and how improvement in one area can affect and create change in other areas and, and having that broader visibility across the business. Absolutely. Really, really interesting. And how did you go about building your teams back then? And how has it changed to the way that you do that today? So back then was quite a while ago. Full disclosure, many of the teams were sort of built. (laughs) I was on them. It hasn't particularly changed in the sense that there's still a technology component, there's still a requirements component, there's still a change component, there's typically an operational aspect to it, there's a financial aspect. So the types of questions and the units of work are largely the same. What has changed is the method of work. So agile as a methodology was still fairly new going, I mean, we're going way back now, almost 20 years. So we were doing a lot of work in waterfall and early days of DevOps, early days of agile, early days of continuous deployment, continuous integration. But there was still as a framework, waterfall was a dominant framework. So I think what has changed are, as I said, the methods where agile and some of these other delivery methods are now more firmly established and certainly much, much more common. And where the work is performed in the organization has also changed a bit. There are more explicit functions around risk and compliance to accommodate a changing regulatory landscape. Information security is a much more robust function. Chief data and analytics officers didn't really exist back then. So looking after with deep subject matter expertise, data and data science, where that work occurs has shifted. So where you find the skills in the organization has evolved and the methods that are used for those people to come together to accomplish an outcome have certainly evolved. But ultimately, how you build the team is largely the same. You're looking at what kind of work do we have? What sorts of skills need to contribute? Where do we draw them from? How do we bring them together? And when you're looking to bring people into the team, what are some of the attributes that you look for and how do you do that process? So there are certainly skill qualifications that we look at. Can somebody do the work? We look at potential. I think this is clearly based on my early experiences, a bias that I have. It's okay to hire potential and invest in the training of that potential. It might take a little bit longer for that individual to reach their full potential, but certainly it's worth the risk. We look at the 
softer attributes of an individual for how they could relate to the team. So you need to be very careful about having a person who is, especially in the agile framework, which is highly, highly collaborative, you know, somebody who just isn't a natural collaborator. If you're putting that individual into a collaborative environment, there is a high potential for friction there. So you need to think not only about the individual, but the dynamics of that individual within the context of the team. And then diversity, it's a common denominator to all of these types of questions. So I certainly try to think about diversity as an attribute of the team. So you don't think about it on a one-off basis. So let's build a team and is it diverse? I think that really works. So when we think about diversity, it's the diversity of experiences, the diversity of cultures, the diversity of thought. That is part of what we hope makes an individual successful in the environment that we're building here. So it's a common theme, really, or a common denominator to each of the staffing decisions that we would make. That is really a um, proactive way of, of approaching diversity. I guess over time, as a team is growing or changing, how do you keep track of the types of diversity in the team and looking to, I guess, rebalance the mix as things change? It's an ongoing management opportunity. You don't think about it. As we have the opportunity to grow, as we have the opportunity for the mix to change, as we have the opportunities for partnerships, as we have the opportunities for external engagements. You're constantly thinking about it and nurturing it as a topic. And mm -hmm. once the people join your team, what is the, the team structure? How does the, that structure look like? How do you work with the different parts of the business that require data or analytics work? And mm -hmm. how is that engagement model and how is the team structure reflect and, or enable that? I'll talk about what we have here at State Farm, which is different from what I have had been a part of at other employers. So State Farm Insurance is really a data-driven industry. The process of matching price to risk is inherently done through data. So it's not like at Unilever where you make a product that goes onto a shelf. The product that we sell and the product that we support is really one that we understand how to price it, how to define it through the use of data. So here at State Farm, there are data capabilities all across the organization, and that is appropriate. So my team here on the data topic, we are a central group that is looking after the data management and governance policies and the application of those policies across the business. So we have defined for the enterprise what it means for data to be well-structured, well-managed, and well-governed. We lead that portion of the total data agenda across the business. On the data science side of the department, that's really about a new and uh, potentially exponentially valuable use of data. So we are working across the different business areas to strategically embed the capability of data science into the business strategy. So we start in a design session with our business areas and our IT partners on what it is that are the big needle moving type of questions where data science is an appropriate type of capability to use to help solve that problem. And the result of that session really goes into the business strategy. It helps to set targets for KPIs or other types of results that we would like to see and integrates then into an overall portfolio of work that will be developed and delivered for that business area over some period of time. So on the data side, you know, we very much uh, own exclusively the what for looking after enterprise data. On the data science team, it's a co-creative process to define the what, and we deliver, we then sort of deliver to that mandate, working together with our partners in IT, risk management, finance, other parts of the organization that need to contribute to that piece of work. 
And I really like the approach that you've taken around the the data management and the data governance side to essentially establish the standards for the organization, really. And then how does that work, I guess, on a day-to-day manner? Is it an education component in terms of working with the business? Is there an oversight component, a collaboration? Can the business go and get maybe consultants or help themselves and then you guys come in? How, How does that side work? It's all of the above. So there are different maturity levels depending on where we are in the business. And so we work with where we are in order to progress as a company to a common endpoint. On the data piece in particular, we haven't yet had the precise repeatable template for engagement because the engagement needs are just a little bit different across the different business areas. So if you're working with marketing, for example, that's a little bit different than working with a claims organization just because the inherent nature of those to business processes and how they support the overall enterprise is very different. So it's incumbent upon us as a central organization to be flexible in order to meet our business partners where at their beginning point and help bring them along on the journey. I really like that approach of meeting the business where they are and adding value from there. Really great. And Mm -hmm. So when you start a new job or you go into a new company, how do you start to put together the data strategy for the new place? So I think data strategy is interpreted many different ways. So the first thing to establish is that there needs to be an approach to how we think about data. Uh, And that is in addition to an approach for how we think about the use of data. And those are two parts to what we would call a data strategy uh, for the business. So if we think about data itself, that is really more about the horizontal aspect. What do we really need to do to prepare data, which really is the raw material for reporting, analytics, data science, other types of advanced uses of data. So what are we really doing to get that raw material ready for use? And I think that's where you get into the basic principles or the basic hygiene of data management So you're exploring topics around master data management, you're exploring topics around metadata, lineage, placement, key strategies, information lifecycle management, data retention, topics of that sort, which really, when you put them together, make for well-managed, readily useful, readily available data uh, for use across the business. When you start getting in then to the use of that data portion of the data strategy, that's really where you start getting into very interesting questions around business strategy and business transformation. So how are we injecting advanced analytics, artificial intelligence, the capabilities that are really fueled by data into a business strategy, into the plans or some revised way of execution in order to produce a measurable business result that, of course, should be beneficial. So I think a data strategy really needs to encompass both of those pillars in order to be complete. But you're working with different parts of the enterprise in order to define what is actually meant by data versus the use of data, and you're really kind of getting into different stakeholder groups as you, as you put that together. And oftentimes people will say, well, I need a data strategy. And if you're talking to somebody who grew up more in the technology space, uh, you're probably more likely to get a strategy that focuses on the data topics versus a business, general manager type of role saying, I need a data strategy, what they're really asking for is that use of data strategy. In my role, in terms of looking after data and analytics, the strategy that we have covers the pillars and how we engage across the organization on those two topics. And on the on the data side, are there any frameworks that you use in order to evaluate the different areas that you mentioned? So, for example, data governance or master data management. Are there any frameworks that you use there? Nothing out of the box. So I haven't really come across a published framework or set of standards through an independent standards body, wherever it might be, uh, that would be helpful. So um, certainly have had the help in, in various times of third-party organizations you know, who might be coming in on a 
consulting basis uh, to answer you know, certain questions or help shape certain aspects of the policy. But for the most part, the, the strategies and frameworks employed. So I wanted to ask you if you had any tips on the data governance side for people wanting to either that need to create a data governance oversight or framework in their companies. What are some of the tips or areas that you look for to make a good one? Data governance is responsibility of all parts of the organization that are contributing to the data asset in the organization. So the first thing that you have to identify is what's the scope from the data perspective and which parts of the business map into that scope. Then you need to be very clear about what the accountability is for the different roles that are part of the governance framework and how far up the executive leadership chain visibility for governance goes. So you would want to have it be, honestly, as senior as you can in order to give it the importance and the gravitas that the, the subject deserves. So it's really about the scope. It's about very clear accountability for what a business area needs to contribute to governance, what an IT organization needs to contribute to enable governance, and what a central group uh, working on data and or analytics needs to do uh, to contribute to governance and to lead the definition framework. And then if you have in your organization uh, corporate law department, office of privacy, office ethics groups that really focus on those sorts of topics. They are very clear contributors to what this framework needs to be and how they are going to be helping people mature in the governance journey. And then I think there's also a component if there is a corporate audit group within an enterprise for the audit team to have come alongside a governance framework and provide that independent view for how it's working and where there might be opportunities to improve. So nobody is going to know data for a business area better than the business area. So your governance framework is really helping that business area understand what their responsibility is for the care and feeding of data that their portion of the business is either creating or managing in some way, and to help them put into place the right structures of accountability within that business area to look after that data in a predictable and repetitive way. With the central team, based on their particular expertise, helping them to understand what they need to do, how they need to do it with the right tools, and making sure that they're asking the right questions of that data and the use of that data to remain compliant and to remain within the bounds of the protocol. So, you know, as far as a framework goes, it's not a terribly difficult framework I think the harder challenge for adoption is really in the behavior changes and coordinating a set of behavior changes across the business to be approximately changing in the same direction at the same rate at the same time. So everybody is kind of working on this together and maturing at approximately the same rate in order to have the enterprise governance uh, function well. So these are types of activities that in many businesses just simply haven't existed. It doesn't, that's neither necessarily a statement about whether it's good or bad, but you just have to recognize that it is net new. And so as a new type of accountability inside of a business department, oftentimes you're starting from from a, a place without very much experience in asking these topics and there's quite a bit about them. What are some ways that you help the organization move at the same pace through the, the rate of adoption? I think it's how from a central group you partner across the organization, how you train, how you build communities of practice so people are helping each other and the experiences of one part of the business become a benefit for everybody else. And then clearly setting expectations around when examinations will occur, when compliance starts to become effective. And really, you know, having a fairly vigilance and active participation um, across areas that are contributing to this and making sure that everybody has full transparency, full understanding of the accountability, and are in a safe enough environment to be very honest about the challenges that they may be having so that those challenges can be quickly addressed with the right leadership accountability to, to give the air cover and the grace for a part of the business to rapidly mature. 
So it's not some sort of secret formula necessarily. It's a lot of vigilant work, elbow grease, you might want to say, to set the destination and work very closely to help people get there at the same time, understanding that people in different parts of the business are likely starting from different places. And on the other side that you mentioned around the use of data, what are some ways that you start to tie your side to the business strategy? I guess the question there is, how do you choose what to do and what to focus on? So I think it's very much a co-creative act between the capability area with analytics or data science and a business area which has more of the executional and the strategy for growth and execution in their realm of accountability. So it oftentimes begins with a conversation and to explore. So questions to ask when you start that conversation are, help me understand, please, where do you think you are too slow, too expensive, where the competition has an edge, where you have information of any type that you think is delivered later than you need it or might be missing altogether. And leaders know this. Most people then immediately give you answers to those questions because of what they think about almost all the time <laughs> working in their world from the leadership position. And that really gives you the entry point of taking what might be an unfamiliar or break through potentially some of the skepticism around some of the uses of more advanced analytics to say there are tools, there are capabilities that may not have been historically as readily available to you, but today are, that can help solve these problems uh, for you in ways that are beneficial for the business. So, you know, let's Think about what some of these more urgent or applicable problems might be. And that should be the starting point then for how to integrate the use of data into a business strategy. What typically then has flown, flowed from there is uh, you sit down and, and start to have a workshop where you unpick business problem in a little bit more detail and you have the data scientists or the advanced analytics practitioners in the room together with the IT colleagues and others who need to participate and really then start to think about, okay, how can these tools of analytics be brought into this particular problem space to more effectively solve it versus what we may have seen as a more traditional solution prior to the availability of the advanced analytics or data science. And then we would take the first day zero kind of problem that we usually agree on with the business area, go through some rapid prototyping to just simply demonstrate what this could look like. And then oftentimes from there, you've graded a comfort level, um, generated some excitement about what the solution can do. And it really starts to take on a life of its own, if you will, in terms of the pull now from the business area to make more effective or broader use of the capability. But if you're working with a business area that just had much exposure to this before, I personally think it's a mistake to start describing what it can do. And instead, mm -hmm. the conversation really needs to be about, okay, I'm a practitioner in this space. I'm a leader in this space of advanced analytics. Help me understand what your problems are in service to those problems. How can I take tools and techniques of data science and advanced analytics and use them to help build success for you inside the business. And, and then it, it, it flows from there. I really like your approach around building uh, quick prototypes to create the mm -hmm. excitement and, and the interest and to show what is possible. Absolutely. It also very much helps to demonstrate for everybody who's contributing to prototype, what do we need to learn? What do we actually need to do? How do we then start to scope use of this capability at scale inside the business? So the prototype generates excitement, but it also is very much a teaching tool for everybody involved to learn early on what it will take to actually scale in production and solution. It starts to demystify it, really, and get people thinking in much more of an execution mode for something that will be transformative um, sooner rather than later. And I wanted to ask if you can expand on how do you measure success with your initiatives? In that answer, I think that there was some mention around 
the number of users and essentially how happy the business is. But I wanted to ask you more, more explicitly, how, how do you measure success in of the initiatives that you work on? So the most important KPIs that I look at are business KPIs that measure the process or that portion of the business where the advanced analytics are going to. So we need to be doing something of benefit and that benefit needs to be part of the business. So satisfactory set of KPIs for me as a leader of the group that's building the artificial intelligence is inconsequential if that piece of analytics itself is not producing something of benefit for the enterprise. So that is actually where we go first. And we are setting up relationships with the finance department to help us measure together with the business player the impact. The business results of this are independently verified by the finance organization, which I think is an important dimension to how we measure because it brings in that independent expertise for how business performance is managed and measured. So there isn't a lot of independent measurement that I do of the work that my team produces. We certainly have and are thinking through how to ensure operational type KPIs for throughput in the team, effectiveness of how we engage and deliver to the organization, but how we think about benefits, how we think about impact, how we think about results. It's very much a business conversation for the impact of our work. And we partner with the finance organization to tell us what that is. Sometimes we get good news and we have more impact than we think we did. Sometimes we get bad news and we have less impact than, uh, than we thought we should. But the point is, is that the independence of finance is coming in to work with us to understand that. And then we also do, I think it's very important to have some initial scoping of what that business results or impact would be as you were defining that portfolio. So we need to make judgment decisions about resource allocation or other types of prioritization calls. You can have sort of business results dimension as part of the decision making for what work is prioritized over what other types. So we always have a sense of the business impact of what we're not working on. So that's really value, if you will, that we're leaving on the table because nobody's working on it quite yet, as well as the impact of the work that is in flight, as well as then the measurement of work that has been made. Really interesting. And how does the engagement with finance work or what does the engagement with finance look like in that sense? Or do you see it as something that would be done at the beginning of the piece of work to understand what the potential value would be? And then during and after or some of those? What would be yeah. your use? Ideally, it's both where the finance organization is helping with the business case preparation. And that obviously is together with the contributing groups where the business, the receiving business area is obviously heavily involved. So assumptions made by finance or other parts of the organization are validated by the, the business area. I think that's very important. And then you're closing the loop on that business case as you measure the The slight twist on what I have at least seen in the companies where I've worked on business case development, uh, oftentimes a business case is, is created in order to justify the initiation of work. And we certainly do that, but we keep that document and front and center to make sure that what we have stated in the business case is actually coming to bear inside the business, uh, which is why we pay so much attention to it up front because we know that we're going to be using it as a way to benchmark the expected results versus the actual results, which quite frankly helps at the very beginning if you know that you're going to be uh, measuring your actuals relative to the expected in the business case, you're spending a lot of time on the business case to make sure that it's not overstated. Yes. And before we, we jump into some of the, the listener questions, I wanted to ask, what are you most excited about right now in terms of your work? What is uh, something that's on your mind, taking out mind share and something that you're looking forward to? So I've been in my current role for about a year and a half. It's been an amazing year and a half working on the transformational aspects of data and transformational possibilities on this use of data. So if I look ahead for the next 12 months, much of the work that has happened over the 
prior 18 months, let's say, is starting to show its results in production. Actually, structural changes um, are taking effect based on the work that we've done, um, obviously for, for the better. And the pull for broadening out the impact of what we're doing on data and use of data across the organization is just tremendous. So honestly, I'm most excited about continuing to expand the mission of data analytics because the, the enterprise is so receptive to it and the results are just so amazing, actually, that the work is always purpose. It's always wanted and requested by the business areas, and as a result, is very much supported across the enterprise. So it's interesting, it's meaningful, and it's impactful. And you can't ask for more than that. Really, it's pretty awesome. So that's excellent. So we'll we'll move on to the listener questions. And one of the first ones is: What makes a great data science leader? I spend a lot of my time with departmental business leaders, and I spend a lot of time with the technology departments and the more mathematical departments who are working on the advanced. So a data science leader, if we take the view that the use of data is driven largely by business strategy, the leader needs to be able to work in a trusted way with business leaders and general managers within the business to open the door of the business strategy to the capability of data science and needs to be able to work effectively with the IT departments, the analytics departments to fulfill and understand what those strategy directions would be. So it's a really interesting and wonderful role that spans both technology and business in a fairly unique way. And depending on where an individual has grown up, so I think most of us professionally grown up, most of us in data science leadership roles have come from the technology, right, in some way, shape, or form. So in the analytics department, the department, I certainly have come from the the challenge really then is how do you calibrate yourself to have meaningful business conversation with senior most business leaders, because that's where strategy is really set, and then be able to translate back and forth between those two or three types of expertise. If you can't talk to the business in ways that the business can understand and trust and rely upon, then you have a leadership challenge, I think, as a data scientist. So it sounds very easy, but dealing and working with sophisticated business leaders of large global enterprises, these are very smart people about business and have a fairly low attention span if you can't rise to their level and speak to them in meaningful ways that, that that they can trust and rely upon. It's mission critical, I think, for the success of data science to penetrate into the fabric of I think being able to operate at that business leader level as a peer in order to maximize the impact of analytics and data science, it's such an important factor. One of the things that we we start working with an area of the business, they'll say, look, I'm willing to take your goals as my goals. Obviously, if they're my goals, they go down. Because what we're doing is really starting to transform and, and with the expectation of elevating a business outcome in a particular area of business. And I'm very willing to share accountability, achieving the results that, that we think we can achieve. And accountability has risk and it has reward. So even though I'm technically speaking more of a service to the business, I am very willing to take a business type of accountability into my area and incentivize my team in the same or very similar ways that the business departments are incentivized. We we have to be in it together in terms of what we're doing for our customers, what we're doing. Yes, definitely. And I'm sure your colleagues are very appreciative of that level of collaboration. Especially in insurance, right? It's the distribution of risk. But it also just says how serious. 
they are, right? I mean, this is, it's a little bit unusual for somebody to come and say, okay, you know, whatever objectives or targets that you have over the next 12 months, I'm willing to take those on with you. We're going to co-create the roadmap in order to achieve this using the best talent that I can provide and the best talent that you can provide to achieve. Yes. And the next one is around what do you see as the future challenges in our industry? So I think talent is a challenge. A lot of articles and and talks have been given on that particular topic. I don't know how much more I can contribute to it other than to say clearly the demand for data science is far outstripping the qualified capacity for data science. that demand is only increasing and the capacity or the qualified talent is increasing at a much lower rate. So it is an issue. How we think about and help contribute to, I think, the debate on privacy and ethics in the use of data, I wouldn't necessarily call that a challenge. I would call it a wonderful opportunity for practitioners in this space to contribute to the various national conversations that are happening around the globe and educate regulators, lawmakers, consumers about what is actually possible through the use of data science and the types of insights that it can generate and to help set appropriate uh, curves and and regulations for where we society would want to draw that. It's a very necessary contribution, I think. You know, I would certainly see it as more of an opportunity than a challenge, but it's an opportunity that we have to be seizing, I think, collectively as a community of practice in data science. I think technology, specifically around the technical debt levels that a number of more well-established companies are dealing with. So the modernization of the underlying IT estate is going to be an important factor in the rate of penetration and the scale of penetration for data science. Many, many companies are dealing with very, very old systems, which were not designed in anticipation of what we can do today. So that, I think, is um, going to be a throttle on the rate of scalability, or the rate of, you know, I guess, on the scalability of data science. Clearly, I think that will work itself out over some number of years as migration to the cloud and the modernization of the more traditional IT state occurs, but it's certainly a reality working in an environment that wasn't originally provisioned for what we're trying to do within that environment. So I think those are the top three. Keep talking for a very long list of, of challenges. Business users are becoming more comfortable data science and what it can do for them. So it's really around how quickly can it scale and what are the appropriate use cases that we're kind of going after and and how does that get appropriately regulated. So the playing field of ethics is a little bit more level. Definitely. Spot on, I think. And I think we have a lot to learn actually from GDPR in Europe. So that is something that we, myself here in the United States, as best as I can, keeping tabs on how the rollout and the practice of GDPR is taking hold in Europe and what lessons can we learn and hear as we practice in the United States from that. I guess thank you <laughs> to the yeah. Europeans for helping lead in that, in that respect. Exactly right. Yeah, being, being first. Mm-hmm. Um, Tristan, this has been so great. One last question for you, and that is, what would be a takeaway or a piece of advice that you would like to leave the listeners with as they go through their their career and their challenges? So I think data science is as much art as it is science. Individuals who are drawn to data science are oftentimes more scientifically minded. So the piece of advice would be don't forget about the art and cultivate that. What does that practically speaking mean? It means very much understanding the impact to the business that the work will have, whether it's a process change, an educational requirement or need for the people receiving it, the type of impact that it will have on the people who will be receiving or having the effect of the work, how to communicate, how to think about the impact of your work, on the society around you, where to think about the ethical limits on the use of data, and how to contribute on those topics to the community of practice, the broader community of practice for data science. 
So we certainly talk a lot about the mathematics and the techniques and how we can further advance what data science can do. And I think the art of it is really understanding and thinking about the why of it, as well as the impact once it makes. And is that compatible with what we think should happen? So I think that would be my parting word of advice for this conversation. That is outstanding. So true and a fantastic, fantastic note to end on. Thank you so much, Justin. Thank you yeah. so much for your time and yeah. for sharing your insights and your your views and your wisdom. Very, very, very enjoyable and much appreciated. <laughs> Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you so much okay. for your time. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> Talk soon. Bye. Boost your data science career with skills that count. James Cook University's 100% online. Master of Data Science is one of Australia's fastest. Study while you work and focus on just one subject at a time. Visit online.jcu.edu.au for more information. As data scientists, we're always looking for ways to gather more data and to understand our customers better. Firebox do just that. With Firebox, you can easily create a quiz for your app, website, or blog. These quizzes are used to generate leads, educate or engage your customers. Check them out today. That's Firebox with a Y. So F-Y-R-E-B-O-X.com. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.